Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Lillard, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello and welcome to Advocation Change It Up, the podcast series of the University of South Florida College of Public Health Activist Lab. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a distinguished university health professor and director of the Activist Lab. The lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at our website, you'll see all the educational programs we do. We have boot camps, seminars, and we do research on a variety of public health topics and advocacy and work to assure students have practice experiences in the community, at the state, and national levels. But before I begin, I must add, the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. Today is a special episode of our podcast as I'm bringing to you the keynote address that was given at the recent sixth annual Activist Lab Boot Camp that was held on Zoom on January 25th and 26th in 2024. The Boot Camp is an annual event of the Activist Lab where participants not only learn about advocacy surrounding a particular topic area, but also get to practice writing position papers and having them critiqued by advocates and legislators. So real boots on the ground experiences. Also at the boot camp, we offer continuing education credits and any student from anywhere can attend free of charge. Our topic for this year's boot camp was suicide prevention, be voices for change. Suicide is the leading cause of violent death in our country and in 2022 totaled nearly 50,000 cases and continues to increase. Our keynote address was given by Dr. Mark Carver, an associate professor in the USF Department of Psychology and known expert in suicide prevention and treatment. As for background, he received his doctoral degree from Vanderbilt University, And for over 20 years, he and his Alliance and Suicide Prevention Lab have engaged in research to better understand core mechanisms in mental health services with a particular focus on suicide risk assessment, prevention, and management. He has numerous publications and many federally funded studies involving assessment, treatment decisions, intervention, or prevention services deliver to suicidal persons with a variety of cultural, racial, ethnic, SES, and other characteristics. Across these projects, he and his research team have developed and researched many interventions to address gaps in the suicide prevention literature. At the Activist Lab website, I have attached his slides under the Advocation Change It Up podcast link where you will find the entire bootcamp video. I hope you enjoy his presentation that follows. All right, thank you again for that kind introduction. And thank you all for coming and giving me this opportunity to talk to you about suicide prevention. So over the next 45 minutes, I'd like to briefly provide you with a little example on why there's a need for suicide prevention and suicide prevention research and talk about some of the ways that suicidologists have attempted to intervene with at-risk individuals. Honestly, anyone who knows me knows I could talk on this topic all day. Um, I will promise I'll try to stay on topic and focused and try to stay within the 45 minutes I'm supposed to. 
And if you're lucky, hopefully I'll inspire some of you on what you can do to make advances in the field of suicide prevention. I want to start by giving you an example. This example is meant to emphasize the need for evidence-based trainings in the field of suicide prevention. Unfortunately, I'm going to be mixing in parts of some true stories. So a 15-year-old teen, let's call her Nicole, is feeling pretty miserable, and she's been feeling like this for quite a while. She feels pretty negative about her, herself and about her ability to do anything. She's embarrassed about her difficulties, so she tries to keep it to herself. Thus, she limits how much she does and how much she interacts with others because she doesn't cause problems for others. Nobody such as her teachers really notices her. Recently, her grades dropped and she started to withdraw even more from her typical hobbies and activities and from the few friends that she has. Her parents think something might be wrong, but they're just not sure, and they don't know how to approach Nicole about it. One of her friends was concerned about Nicole not getting together at all recently, so she actually texted Nicole. Nicole responded, nothing really matters because her life just can't get better. Her friend really didn't know how to respond to that. Nicole's friend, very atypically for most teens, actually decided to go to the school counselor. Remember, I said this stuff is based on some true story stuff. She was not able to get an appointment because the school counselor was too busy and nobody asked why Nicole's friend wanted the appointment in the first place. A few days later, Nicole goes into the garage and she spends some time looking at her dad's gun, which is sitting in a shoebox. She then decided to go inside and she took a bunch of over-the-counter painkillers. Her parents found her throwing up and they took her to the emergency room. At the ER, she was examined and treated for her physical symptoms. However, she was not given any mental health screening measures and was only barely asked about anything having to do with her mental health. Given lack of any rapport and fears of mental health stigma, Nicole did not reveal why the medication overdose happened, as she basically said it was an accident. Nonetheless, the ER staff did suggest to the parents that they consider taking her for a mental health evaluation. However, no referrals were given or made, and the parents didn't know how to find mental health services. Upon leaving the ER, there was no follow-up from any ER staff. So, in the time that we have together now, I want to discuss information with you that's quite important relative to the example that I just gave you. I imagine you all have some interest in this topic of this talk today, since you're here. Um, but in particular, we don't want to see a chain of events as I've described in the example of Nicole. So I want us to think about this example of Nicole because it's pretty obvious now, but clearly the parents, school personnel, friends, they didn't realize Nicole was at risk for suicide. And any concerns anyone had, they didn't know what to do about it. It also was concerning Nicole and had and continues to have access to lethal means. Further, she had the opportunity to enter into the mental health service system, but in several places, the system didn't have procedures in place to identify and help her. Clearly, the people who encountered her did not have adequate training, and there was not follow-up to get Nicole actually into the presence of a trained mental health professional. Unfortunately, this is not particularly atypical, and we should be very concerned given, as you probably know, Suicide is one of the leading causes of death, and the rates are currently at the highest that they've ever been. Notably, the prevalence of suicide attempts is even higher, with the rates reported as high as approximately 10% for adolescent suicide attempts. A recent international meta-analysis found lifetime rates of suicidal ideation can be between 15 to 25%. There are a number of reasons why we have these type of statistics about suicide. A number of studies have shown us that Suicidal individuals often don't know that their symptoms represent mental health problems and are reluctant to disclose suicidal thinking to others and are among the least likely to seek help from others, including from mental health professionals. In fact, they often engage in help negation in which they avoid friends, family, or professionals who might help them as they feel disconnected, believe others won't care, and they put a burden on them. Even in the presence of a health professional, 
Many individuals do not report their suicidal ideation to feelings of embarrassment, shame, stigma, fears of rejection, and concern and trust issues about if they can be helped and about being hospitalized. Studies have shown that others, such as parents, are often quite unaware of the suicidal thinking of family members and feel helpless when they learn about suicide risk. In addition, studies also have shown that teachers have very low ability without training to know how to recognize suicide risk factors. They have no idea how to respond to suicidal individuals. Youth, if they're willing to talk to someone, will most likely talk to their peers. Parents are the adults that they're most likely to talk to. However, these peers and parents, they don't recognize suicide warning signs. They're not comfortable having these conversations. They're also reluctant and unsure how to talk to or make a referral about a youth who's exhibiting possible suicide risk. Unfortunately, healthcare providers also often don't identify at-risk individuals. Health and even mental health professionals often have insufficient knowledge, skills, or training about how to identify, assess, and manage risk. They often carry many myths and negative attitudes about suicidal individuals, and they're not comfortable with asking about suicide and or they're not comfortable or feel they don't have time for following up on identified suicide risk. Unfortunately, this includes the mental health professionals who are often the people that suicidal individuals are referred to. So this should worry us all, given that nearly half of all adults who die by suicide have been found to have seen a healthcare provider in the month prior. In addition, surveys of clinicians have found that nearly all clinicians will come in contact with a suicidal client at some point in their career, and almost one of every three clinicians will have a client die by suicide. Even when health or mental health professionals identify someone as being at risk for suicide, the attempts to intervene all too often are ineffective and even potentially harmful practices. Concerningly, a large percentage of clinicians either use or believe that having a client sign a no-suicide contract is adequate, when in fact, these simplistic agreements to have clients agree not to kill themselves have been found to give clinicians a false sense of security and even increase suicide risk. So they don't actually do anything to help a client get through a crisis. In addition, another common response to hearing about suicide risk is brief hospitalization which is followed by low post-discharge mental health service use. This is very concerning since post-discharge lack of services is a significant predictor of increased suicide risk. Just so you know, more than two-thirds of persons with suicidal thoughts do not receive mental health services. Some of this is that referred individuals do not follow through on referrals for treatment, as many don't know how to navigate the complex system of care. They don't know how to attain services, and even if given a referral, they're uncertain as, what will these services provide me anyway? Even if they attend a referral, they frequently drop out of treatment early. On top of all these post-referral barriers, the system typically doesn't provide any support to individuals or help them with communication with where they were referred. Once a referral is made to make sure the individual goes to the referral stays in treatment, like it would be really important to do that, but it doesn't happen right the way things are right now. So given what I've told you so far, it probably is not too surprising that we have the current statistics about suicide, suicide risk. However, fortunately, <laughs> we're probably going to be overwhelmed by this slide. Um, there have been a number of efforts, including by my lab, to identify and study areas in which one can intervene to reduce or even prevent suicide risk. This will be much of what I plan soon to be sharing with you all. For those who know me, no surprise, we're pretty firm believers in my lab that research should be model driven. So to be honest, there's probably many different prevention models that I probably could pu pull up and show you. However, to guide my review with you all today, I'm showing you my own model since one, I was involved in making it and thus I already have a slide. Mm -hmm. um, I plan to briefly review many of these different areas in the model 
but I definitely don't have time to cover all of them. I'll try to cover as many as I can in the time that I have. Um, but this kind of gives you an, an overview of kind of some of the different things that exist out there in the field, you know, and that we also do in the lab. That's, that's the aim numbers that you see there. You can see why my students feel like, oh, we have too many projects in the lab. Okay, so one of the most popular suicide prevention strategies is gatekeeper training. QPR, Cognito, Safe Talk, Response, Living Works Assist Program, I Care are all examples. These are all about training a variety of individuals, teachers, coworkers, peers, parents, to recognize suicide risk, to make appropriate referrals. This prevention method is meant to deal with the problem of unidentified individuals at risk for suicide. They generally all have an emphasis on psychoeducation. Trainees learn about recent suicide statistics, how to recognize warning signs and risk factors. In other words, how to ask and talk about suicide risk and how to be aware of community resources and make referrals to others. Trainings can take place in as little as one hour, but can take up to three hours. And depends really whether the training is purely lecture-based or if it allows time for discussion and role play, which will be something I'll come back to a little bit. Looking at publications and reviews over the last couple of decades, we basically learned that following gatekeeper training, we see large and fairly sustained increases in suicide prevention knowledge. We also see lasting improvement in trainees' beliefs that they can use suicide prevention skills. However, while suicide prevention training improves attitudes about trying to help suicidal individuals, these attitude changes have not been found to persist over time. Most concerning, however, is that actual engagement in suicide prevention behaviors does not appear to change on average from participation in these suicide gatekeeper trainings. In addition, most of these gatekeeper trainings are not actually directed at some of the people who know the at-risk person the best. They're not directed at their family members. Unfortunately, there are few consumer-informed, family-focused suicide prevention training programs. Out of these, most programs focus on psychoeducation, typically only on single topics, such as positive family functioning, psychological health, maintaining youth safety. Some of these training approaches do go beyond psychoeducation and actually include training on various skills, such as conflict resolution, improving family communication, incorporating behavioral contingencies. Some of these approaches also utilize interactive discussions and role plays to help ensure learning of skills. Some family friendship approaches have a similar purpose to what I've actually previously just mentioned, that is they train family members to be gatekeepers. However, same family approaches go beyond this and teach family members behaviors to actually reduce youth risk, to decrease stress and increase a sense of feeling supported. While there are some single training family approaches, a lot of time family involvement in suicide prevention is delivered as part of ongoing therapy. For the moment, if we just focused on the non-therapy suicide prevention with the explicit purpose of working with family members, there's not a lot out there. There's evidence for family trainings focused on lethal means restriction. That is, these programs have been found to successfully train family members to reduce access to highly lethal suicide methods. The skills-based parents care program has some pretty promising findings. Parents really like the training and post-training they report feeling more hopeful and less frustrated. And at two month follow-up, Parents reported using rather high rates of active listening and being supportive with at-risk family members. However, if we look at gatekeeper trainings that explicitly train parents, and there's not many, and they haven't been developed for parents, the results are not as promising. While these trainings increase parental knowledge on suicidology information, they've only resulted in small increases in parental confidence in engaging with suicidal individuals and have not been found to improve parental identification and referral behaviors. Given that gatekeeper training does not result in the identification of everyone who's at risk for suicide, more direct identification approaches, such as directly screening at-risk individuals, have been utilized. Screening tools have included single questions asking about suicidal thoughts, plans, or attempts, depression screeners, such as the 
the PHQ-9 or BDI, that's back depression inventory, multiple suicide-related question-focused tools, such as the CSSRS, Sad Persons, ASQ, the Beck SSI, or the SIQ, and multidimensional mental health screeners, such as the behavioral health screen. For the most part, these screeners are brief questionnaires given to students and or mental health or health clients. These screening tools have been used in schools, healthcare and mental health care settings. They've been used in outpatient settings, ERs, hospital settings. The purpose of screening is to have individuals self-identify through one or more questions as being at risk for suicide, since those around them, as we've kind of previously pointed out, they may not be able to tell that someone's at risk for suicide. And at-risk persons rarely automatically disclose a need to help to others. The questions may be directly about suicidal thoughts or behaviors or may more indirectly get at suicide risk by asking about warning signs and risk factors. Results from a screening are supposed to indicate which individuals may benefit from further assessment. And recent reviews to some extent seem to suggest that this is what they do. Screening tools have in fact been found to identify persons with suicidal ideation and suicide risk factors who did not have known mental health concerns and would have been missed. So that's good. However, I do want to point out the sensitivity and specificity of youth screening tools seems to be a lot better than that of adult screening tools. The ASQ in particular with youth has been found to have a very good sensitivity and specificity. The SIQ and SIQ Junior have also been found to have strong psychometrics. The CSSRS has strong psychometrics also. However, it's more often recommended as a follow-up screen because it has to be administered by a trained professional. It's worth noting that general mental health screens often miss at-risk individuals identified with tools with suicide-specific questions. In fact, the PHQ-8, which removed the suicide-specific question, misses about 30% of at-risk individuals who are identified by the PHQ-9. On the other hand, screening tools that only ask directly about suicide-related questions have also been found to miss other potential indicators of suicide risk. Interestingly, recent screening research has suggested additional variables that might be used to identify those at elevated risk. I'm going to come back to that later, though, so I'm going to make you wait on that one when I get to my future directions on each of these. Another point of concern is that research suggests that screening alone is not sufficient. I'm sorry to tell you this, but it's been found over 80% of persons identified as at risk by screening tools have not been found to engage in mental health services within one year of the screening. Relatedly, research has shown that when screening for suicide risk is paired with receipt of a mental health intervention, rates of suicidal behavior are lower. Seems we've got something there. All right. To this point, I've shared with you all a number of approaches. However, each approach has had the problem of identified persons not ending up in services. Given this problem, an alternate broader approach has been tried, social marketing. Suicide prevention social marketing messaging campaigns have become increasingly common. The messages are typically short pieces of information or advice delivered to large populations, suggesting the recipient of the message seek help for themselves, call a suicide French hotline for themselves, and or help to refer someone else to services. You know, basically, if they think someone else might be at risk. These social marketing campaigns are typically delivered in a variety of ways, such as on the outside of buses or inside of buses, in newspapers, at churches, on billboards, via radio and TV services. For the most part, these social marketing campaigns have been found to increase knowledge about suicide and awareness of suicide being a problem. However, attitudes present a more complicated issue for these social marketing campaigns. There's some evidence that social marketing campaigns decrease stigma and increase positive attitudes for suicide prevention, but only for others around suicidal individuals. 
Several studies, unfortunately, have provide evidence that suicide prevention social marketing campaigns targeted for the at-risk individual themselves may actually decrease their positive attitudes about seeking help. Although there are a few studies that suggest increases in intentions to seek help for oneself, but they're in definitely in the minority of studies there. Ultimately, the biggest issue is whether or not social marketing campaigns can change behavior. There's some evidence that campaigns that specify recommended helping behaviors do increase intentions to engage in these behaviors and to a lesser extent, actual engaging in behaviors, such as asking that risk person how they're doing. It's worth noting there's some evidence suggesting that people may be more responsive to social marketing messages coming from what appear to be similar persons rather than they've tried campaigns where like messages come from celebrities and they're not, people aren't as responsive to that. So it's not like, you know, Sprite commercials or something. All right. Um, so we have a bunch of approaches to identify at-risk persons and make them aware of and, you know, refer them to services. Yet again, as I mentioned, we have a problem with referred individuals actually ending up and staying in services. So this is where care coordination can serve an important role. A care coordinator is a type of service provider who assesses client needs and then works with the client to make a plan and then facilitates to link the client to other services or resources to get those needs met. There's tremendous variability in how care coordination has been provided. A recent review suggested there's over 40 unique definitions, you know, which basically result in care coordination that varies from limited contacts that focus on just facilitating service entry to care coordinators who help clients find resources, help exchange information between service providers, to care coordinators who even are more frequently involved and help with symptom monitoring and even intervening in crises. So it's quite a range in what care coordinators do. In the general healthcare literature, care coordination has been found to reduce excessive utilization of restrictive healthcare services, improve patient engagement, improve linkages to care and treatment adherence, increase client reports and needs being met, lower reported symptom distress, and, and improve reports of physical, mental functioning and quality of life. Unfortunately, a major limitation of existing care coordination services is that most care coordination programs have not been designed to prepare care coordinators to work with suicidal patients. I do wanna note that there is some evidence suggesting care coordination type efforts can be useful for suicidal individuals, a small number of care coordination models with features such as using safety planning, strengths-based emphasis, regular meetings between the care coordinator and client, emphasis on the care coordinator providing support to clients and the providers they're working with, have been found to have at-risk clients who stay connected to services, utilize less emergency department care, have reduced suicidal ideation. While these results are, results are promising, these select few approaches have not been replicated beyond their initial target samples, are not representative of typical care coordination, which has been criticized as being inadequately patient-centered. So, all right, so I've kind of got you there, but I'm gonna keep moving us along. So let's say given some form of identification and some process that results in successful referral to a mental health professional, now we have another problem. We have mental health professionals who lack the knowledge, skills, and positive attitudes to carefully assess and work with suicidal clients. Fortunately, there are a number of available trainings, AMSR, CAMS, RRSR, QPRT. These all place an emphasis on a workshop-style format. So basically, during the trainings, clinicians learn how to assess um, for and organize the overwhelming number of risk and protective factors. And there's a lot. I could fill this whole slide with what's been identified in the literature. They also learn what questions to ask, what to do with the information that's gathered, basically how to determine level of risk, the type of response needed to manage the risk that's consistent with legal standards of care. So trainings such as the ones I mentioned to you have been found to increase knowledge of risk assessment and suicide prevention practices and attitudes and beliefs about suicide prevention and suicidality. 
Less commonly, studies have been shown to improve perceived ability to identify and manage client risk, with some studies even providing evidence of improved skills. However, this empirical support is actually rather limited. There's rarely been any comparison between trained and untrained mental health professionals. They're often open trials. And the ones that have been done uh, have not found a significant difference in use of suicide prevention behaviors. There has also been concerns raised about these trainings being too long, too expensive, not interactive enough. And that last point in particular is very important. Trainings that do not actively involve participants are less likely to result in trainees learning and later using the skills taught. Besides the more general suicide risk assessment and management trainings, there have also been more focused trainings. Basically, do you have tools and skills to others to help clients get through a crisis? This prevention approach falls under the category of safety planning. Fortunately, this approach was developed to replace the all too popular but highly ineffective no suicide contracts that I had mentioned earlier. The first of these was the crisis response plan, and this was followed by the CAM safety plan, and we have now the most popularly used Stanley Brown safety plan. These approaches help the person working with an at-risk individual to identify warning signs and crisis triggers, identify potential skills to help them tolerate stress and regulate their emotions, identify potential reasons for living, identify and limit access to potentially lethal means, and to identify how to access supports or emergency care. Fortunately, clinician use of safety planning has been found related to both youth and adult clients having decreased feelings of depression and hopelessness, increased reports of coping, decreased self-harm behavior, increased treatment attendance, decreased engagement in more lethal methods of self-harm and lower rates of hospitalization and deaths by suicide. Unfortunately, there's only been limited research on how to train individuals to develop and use a safety plan with an at-risk individual. In fact, these trainings that do exist have mostly focused on just one aspect, lethal means restriction, and they haven't addressed the other elements that are in a safety plan. So moving us to our next area, Given that suicidal ideation and behavior result of a complex interaction of many characteristics, risk factors, and environmental events, I could do a whole talk on that too, um, it's no surprise treatment is a very important prevention approach. Inpatient hospitalizations commonly used for individuals determined to be at imminent risk for attempting suicide. Most suicide prevention guidelines actually recommend intensive outpatient therapy. However, they actually often don't specify what type of treatment you should be doing in this intensive outpatient therapy. Approaches that have been tried range from poetry reading, movement therapy, psychodynamic therapy, electroconvulsive therapy, various psychiatric drugs, cognitive behavioral therapy, CAMs, acceptance and commitment therapy, DBT, and eclectic blends of anything I've just mentioned. Ultimately, all these approaches are meant to help the client to be safer by focusing varying aspects, such as just receiving intensive contact and support, or teaching how to cope with stressors, decrease negative thinking, and or become better at problem solving. So what do we know about the usefulness of these approaches? Well, let's get to the one you probably know. Inpatient hospitalization is used to ensure safety in an imminent suicide crisis. However, the research shows it's an ineffective treatment as it doesn't reduce future engagement in suicidal behaviors. As for the various psychotherapy approaches, several have been found in randomized controlled trials with adults to increase hope, to reduce depressive symptoms and suicidal thoughts and behaviors. So basically you've got like CBT, cognitive therapy for suicide prevention, CAMS and DBT, all have evidence. For youth, DBT appears to be the most effective treatment approach. However, while this all sounds pretty good, I do need to let you know that many studies have not found a difference between these treatments when they're compared to a comparison treatment. And meta-analyses, when they've looked at the overall effect sizes, it's actually pretty small. So to this point, I've shared with you a number of different suicide prevention approaches. It's a bit of a whirlwind, I know. I'm trying to get through a lot. However, the existence of potentially evidence-based suicide prevention approaches does not mean suicide prevention will actually be implemented. 
These issues such as lack of organizational support, poor organizational climate have been found to be barriers to implementing suicide prevention programming. Organizations with these issues don't dedicate enough time for things like training or resources to support suicide prevention programming. They don't encourage or support their employees to learn suicide prevention behaviors. So given this overarching problem, systemic organizational suicide prevention approaches have been developed. Initially, they tended to be organization-specific initiatives without much theoretical or empirical guidance. However, in 2012, the Zero Suicide Framework was created to provide evidence-informed elements in which to enact system-wide changes. The Zero Suicide Framework is a rather comprehensive approach to working with large systems and organizations to get them to change their organizational climate relative suicide to suicide prevention. It involves engaging organizational leadership with persons with lived experiences to create and support a safety-oriented organizational culture. It involves provision of various evidence-based suicide prevention trainings, creation of policies and procedures, such that all clients who enter the system have the possibility of being competently identified with evidence-based tools and provided with carefully planned steps for continuous culturally sensitive services as needed. Unfortunately, despite widespread implementation of the Zero Suicide Framework, there have been very few studies. One study found that implementation of the Zero Suicide Framework was followed by a decrease in having organizational culture relative to suicide prevention that focuses on blame and risk avoidance. That's good. With the organization culture shifting in the more positive direction, such that staff felt they actually could help clients at risk for suicide and trust that they would be supported by their organization. There were also two studies that found when more elements of zero suicide are implemented in a service system, it was associated with lower system-wide rates of suicide attempts, fewer repeat suicide attempts by the same person, and fewer deaths by suicide. Again, some good positive information there, just not a lot. On the other hand, research has identified a number of difficulties when zero suicide has been implemented. Implementers in particular have struggled with implementing lethal means reduction procedures, incorporating safety planning, connecting with community support resources, especially this has been a problem with emergency department staff, assessment of staff suicide prevention skills, tracking suicide-related data, and collaborating with persons with lived experiences. In general, implementers often have to overcome initial provider skepticism about the approach, provider dissatisfaction with being asked to use new tools or standards. Sorry, but people don't like to change. I know we think about that with our clients, but we also are often reluctant to change. And patients, actually, some of them report they don't like the timeliness sense of urgency of the suicide prevention pathway. So, given what I've shared with you so far, and it's a lot, I know, um, one can see there's many promising approaches in the suicide prevention field. However, in pretty much every area I pointed out, there's room for improvement. So, we're looking first at gatekeeper training, we see there's quite a few gatekeeper training approaches that are available. And there is evidence for gatekeeper training changing various things about gatekeepers. But there's a lack of evidence suggesting these trainings are actually changing gatekeeper behavior. So I think it's time that suicide prevention implementers and researchers put more focus on understanding why trains are not actually helping more at-risk individuals. One possibility is that too many of these trainings are delivered as an efficient version. Remember I talked about varying from one to three hours. Well, the efficient one hour version basically tends to be lecture based and this is what everybody wants. Give me the quick lecture version. Perhaps trainees need time added to these trainings to see gatekeeper skills demonstrated, try out the skills, receive feedback and have some time to discuss, you know, the possible barriers they might encounter in trying to approach and talk to a suicidal person, how they might be able to overcome these barriers. Perhaps we can integrate aspects of motivational interviewing to explore what trainees see as the pros and cons to engaging in helping behaviors. Maybe training needs to be broken up into multiple sessions. I know people are like, oh my gosh, we have to do this more than once? In, in, but Because we typically do these single delivery trainings, but we know 
if you look at the learning literature, spaced learning is far superior to learning any material at one time. Mind you, like those days in college when your professors told you, you know, don't cram the night before, space out your learning. That's a research-based suggestion. So perhaps more moderators can be explored in the research to identify characteristics of individuals who are more responsive to changing their behavior following gatekeeper training. Perhaps some people enter gatekeeper training with more fears around the use of the word suicide. We actually literally had a discussion about this at a recent meeting. And thus, they would be less likely to address the topic with others. If this would be found, more focus would need to be added to the trainings to explore reluctance and stigma people may have around the word and convince them and increase their comfort to overcome this reluctance. Maybe people who have greater empathy or existing social and organizational support are more able to help at-risk individuals once they've received training. If something like this were to be found, it could suggest new potential components for gatekeeper trainings, such as empathy training. Or maybe gatekeeper training needs to be part of a large, larger package of prevention trainings focused on building organizational or other interpersonal supports for potential gatekeepers so they can feel supported when they try to help others. Probably more attention needs to be given to the varying context that gatekeepers operate within. We need to explore cultural and developmental differences and risk factors and warning signs for suicide, perhaps understand more about cultural, religious, and developmental differences and how people actually help one another. This could lead to improvements in how people notice suicide risk in their various contexts and provide them with more context and or age-appropriate language with which to engage someone they're concerned about. If we next take a look again at family involvement in suicide prevention, we have the issue not that family involvement is missing, it's just not emphasized enough in suicide prevention. It's not commonly implemented outside of therapy, and when it's used as a prevention approach, it tends to be either a slight modification of the approaches that people use for others who interact with potentially suicidal individuals, or it's del delivered basically as a single component prevention effort. It would seem that our field needs to give more attention to involving families in suicide prevention. We need to collaborate with family members and ask them what they want and need and how they would like it provided. In my team's own work, you had to know at some point I was going to slip my own stuff in here. We conducted focus groups with family members of persons at risk for suicide. They told us that they wanted multi-component type trainings to address multiple concerns, and that they needed training material to be more accessible to them in response to this information. So we co-created a family guide for suicide prevention with community stakeholders that has elements requested by the family members, such as how to better engage with at-risk family members, how to build strengths, coping skills, and resiliency in at-risk family members, and how to empower family members in working with the mental health service system. Once we created this and disseminated it, we got feedback from family members that some family members wanted a live family training to follow up reading the family guide so they would have the opportunity to actually learn more about the skills being suggested, discuss them, try them out, and receive feedback on their attempts to use the skills. In particular, family members wanted to practice how to validate feelings and emotions, how to directly ask about suicide, how to use various communication strategies and tactics for engaging in conversations that focus on seeking help and using community support. Just so you know, our early research on the family guide and the family training has provided some promising evidence for improving family member knowledge, effective attitudes, perceived behavioral control, perception of social norms, and intentions to use these skills. So you may recall when I reviewed the screening literature, I pointed out that standard screening tools were missing many at-risk individuals. It mentioned that new variations of screening were providing interesting findings. So for example, it's been found individuals with critical parents, violence and arguing in the home, and no close supports have higher suicide risk. So perhaps, maybe need to rethink our suicide screening over focusing on just asking suicide-related questions. 
especially when you consider that there are individuals who are reluctant to, to disclose this information about suicidal thinking or behaviors, even on screening tools. We know screening tools, people are more likely to respond to than if you ask them out loud, but there are people who are reluctant even on screening tools to respond. So we need to think more about assessing profiles of risk factors and warning signs, such as the earlier mentioned family variables or lack of social connectedness, use of maladaptive coping strategies such as substance use, not meeting academic expectations or being a victim of bullying or discrimination. These are questions people have been found to be more likely to respond to that may indicate need for further attention. In fact, keep in mind, black youth who have been found to later make a suicide attempt have been found to not mark suicidal thoughts on screening measures. So when it comes to use of screening tools, this clearly points out that we have to learn more about cultural differences in how people respond to screening tools and likely cultural differences in risk factors, warning signs, and protective factors. And this is an area that I'm currently working with with several collaborators who are actually in this meeting right now. Given what I've shared with you earlier about most current suicide prevention social marketing campaigns having little empirical support for their effectiveness, it seems our field needs to move beyond the ways we've been doing suicide prevention social marketing. Most of these campaigns are put together by well-intentioned individuals and organizations who are really trying their best to reach out and help others. While they're well-intentioned, they don't necessarily know what at-risk persons and potential helpers want or need. The way to address this barrier would be to learn from for-profit marketing companies. It's hard to believe that we can learn from McDonald's, but I think we can. Okay, let's look at how they market their products. They basically have too much money at stake to try to guess what consumers will respond to. So they go and ask the consumers. Don't you remember ever being approached in the mall by someone, they kind of pull you in and they have you like test out, like, how does this taste? How does that taste? We need to do the same thing. Our social marketing campaigns need to be informed by our target audiences. I believe these campaigns need to be developed based on input from our target audience. This can be from focus groups, follow-up interviews, surveys, and of course, be included as part of our message creation teams. Let's not think we can just do this ourselves. Let's do it with them. We actually are currently doing this on one of our current projects. So far, we've conducted 15 focus groups recently. Some of the advice has been to include words of encouragement in social marketing campaigns, to include the sharing of real stories and lived experiences, to think more about trying to elicit even name feelings such as you are loved, to come up with concise but memorable slogans, avoid too much mental health jargon. I often refer to it as psychobabble. I don't know if you have a term like public health babble. Um, avoid overused phrases. And while action messages are more successful, we are warned, be careful. Don't impose responsibility or suggest someone has to be a savior. Instead, use messages such as, you don't have to be perfect to provide help. Feedback has gone beyond just word choice, but even includes elements such as, use bright colors and graphics, use images depicting culture and gender diversity. Also, it was suggested that social marketing campaigns need to modernize more and share messages via social media, websites, and YouTube. I know it's going so fast, but I'm gonna get us through here. Okay, as you may recall, when I was reviewing the care coordination literature, I pointed out that there were few programs that addressed preparing the care coordinators to work with suicidal individuals. My experience is working with real world care coordinators, it's extremely rare to find adequately prepared care coordinators for our target population. While there's potential in the literature, most of the care coordination programs out there have too minimal of contact with clients. They don't put enough emphasis on the important skills of client engagement and how to work with suicidal clients. In addition, the care coordination programs may exist. However, there's only three studies I was able to find that actually train care coordinators. So we just like, we have these things and then we just assume they're gonna absorb it somehow. So to address this gap in care for suicide individuals, here we go again, we developed our own training. This training was developed utilizing prior care coordination research literature, prior experiences, focus groups, various theories on health service utilization, 
such as the quality model of mental health services, the behavioral model of health service use, the trans theoretical model of change, Milner and Rolnick's theory of motivation, self-determination theory, and uh, Carver et al.'s common factors model. Yeah, that'd be me. The training was developed and has a special emphasis on the need for care coordinators to be the safety net. We teach them how to utilize a suicide risk triage form to make sure they assess suicide warning signs, risk factors, and protective factors. They learn our suicide risk detection pathway, which has stages of screening with follow-up suicide risk assessment. And they learn to utilize safety planning and lethal means restriction. They're taught to assess and address identified client needs, assess client coping skills and strengths, and encourage their use or provide them education on supplemental skills if they need those. And finally, no surprise to anyone who knows my other major line of research is we have an entire training module on how to build a therapeutic alliance with these clients. At this point, we've implemented our training to many different types of care coordinators in different settings with different populations all throughout Florida. We also currently have an NIMH grant that's focused on adapting, implementing, and testing our care coordination intervention specifically to benefit at-risk Black youth. We believe cultural adaptation of care coordination efforts is really lacking in our field. Honestly, I could probably make that statement about pretty much every prevention area that I've just mentioned. I don't want to have my, all my future directions just focused on everything we're doing in my lab, so I'll give you some other stuff. I want to point out another possible direction relative to care coordination. Technology has really taken off in the last 10 years. We really see this in the medical field, not as much in the mental health field. When you think about all that care coordinators can potentially do, can you imagine how much better it could possibly be if we had like artificial intelligence aiding them with some of the things they do, like help them with risk assessments, help them recommend coping skills to a client, help recommend optimal referral sources or help track service use? These could be interesting ways to go with, you know, how AI is becoming so popular now. When I went over the area of professional suicide risk assessment and management, you may remember I point out there have been decent quantitative results. However, the qualitative experience of trainees has told a different story. Some of the more comprehensive in-person approaches are not liked by mental health professionals because they feel the trainings are too long, too expensive. The mental health professionals say they prefer less expensive online training options. Well, we implemented and studied one of those online options. While the quantitative data was promising for the online training, participants felt the training could be improved if the information was presented in a format other than lectures or text. Honestly, given what we know from the very well-established behavioral skills training literature, this feedback shouldn't be surprising. There's extensive literature that shows skilled behaviors more likely to be learned when, in addition to just giving them information, you have a skilled trainer actually model how to perform the behavior, trainee gets to practice the behavior, the trainer provides live reinforcement of correct behavior or corrective feedback on maybe how they can bring the behavior up to the level that would be more optimal. Given this feedback and our knowledge of the training literature, we developed a role play training. You notice we keep developing things. Remember when Karen introduced me, she said that, you know, we like to fill gaps in literature. This is what we do. So we developed a role play training that could be used following the online training. To be honest, the quantitative improvements across variables from post-online training to post-role-play training were far superior to the changes from pre- to post-online. So we got something here. So while we have published on the role-play training supplement, I think I want to point out a future direction that I actually have to say was not mine. My grant project officer is actually the one who brought this up. She noted that many trainees across SAMHSA grants don't like the various professional trainings out there. And she pointed out what we had noticed is that they often don't like the online training. But they liked our training with the role plays. So she suggested, why don't we consider taking our role play training and make it into a standalone professional training that gives just enough informational background to address the literature and evidence-based standards of care on risk assessment and management, but mostly focus on the role play aspect. So we're actually currently putting that together right now. Um, 
So, but keeping in mind some of the other things that I've talked about, we do need to make sure that we're not skipping too much stuff at the beginning and that we're giving enough information to try to overcome clinician reluctance and negative beliefs about using the skills taught. We remember, like, you know, as we've kind of mentioned before, okay, we need to motivate clinicians to actually change their behaviors. Because again, just like our clients, you know, clients don't change if we don't, if they're not motivated to change. Well, you know what? Clinicians are the same way. If you don't motivate them, they're not changing either. Much like the prior area that I discussed, quality of data relative to the use of existing safety planning tools revealed several challenges with the current tools. In times of distress, when clinicians and clients are trying to work together, put together a safety plan, the clients have difficulty concentrating, which makes sense. And this, of course, makes it more difficult for the clinicians trying to help them to identify the components of the safety plan, such as coming up with coping skills options, which are a really important part of a safety plan. So given this, once again, my team developed a new tool called the Wellness Toolbox. We attempted to add new components to the classic safety plan to try to enhance ease of use. Our new safety planning tool provides multiple options to select for each category of the plan. It also includes a client-generated statement to remind clients that crisis is temporary. They can use this to quickly remind themselves in the moment that the crisis will resolve, which can help generate hope. Instead of just identifying supports, the plan includes asking, okay, with these identified supports, what do you, what do you want to get from these supports? You know, do you want listening? Do you want help with problem solving? And given the research suggests that clinicians don't know how to safety plan and there is limited training on this, we also developed a safety planning training. Our preliminary research findings have demonstrated significant improvement in provider knowledge of safety planning components, attitudes towards safety planning, emotions towards suicidal clients, perceived capability, um, reduced perceived barriers and risks to safety planning, and improved intentions to engage in safety planning. While we're pleased to have made these new additions to their safety planning, there's more work to be done. There's a need to make these safety plans more accessible to clients. The field needs to develop new versions of these tools, utilize technologies such as phone apps. In addition, there's a surprising lack of consideration of culture in the safety planning literature. More work needs to be done to understand what types of cultural adaptations can be made to make these tools more appealing and accessible to diverse populations. The field should also consider the importance of training the clinicians who work with diverse populations how to safety plan with clients in a culturally competent manner. Finally, while preliminary research does suggest that safety planning is beneficial, more work is needed to understand what are the mechanisms behind the usefulness of safety planning. If we understand the mechanisms, this could lead to better knowledge on how we can improve our existing safety planning tools and how clients are actually taught to use them. I'm almost through. Okay. While it's good that there are a handful of treatment approaches out there for working with suicidal clients, it's concerning these treatments don't have larger effect sizes for such a serious problem. This means that there's a lot of room for improvement in our existing treatments for suicidal individuals. While these approaches are fairly good at reducing the risk of repeat suicide attempts, clients in these treatments all too frequently still have suicidal ideation, they have elevated depressive symptoms, so we need more and better research to understand what are the mechanisms of successful treatment, what are the moderators, who appears to respond better, who appears to be having more difficulty in these treatments. This type of research can generate ideas on how to improve our treatments or maybe how we might need to vary our treatments depending on the needs of our suicidal individuals because I don't know how much many of you worked with suicidal clients. They are very different from one another. So should we really be delivering the same treatment to every single one of them? So I also personally think our clinicians need more guidance on how to motivate suicidal clients given research shows they often enter treatment as among the least motivated type of clients. And we need to teach therapists how to form stronger therapeutic alliances with suicidal clients because the research also shows that suicidal clients are among the most difficult to engage and to keep engaged in treatment. In addition, I think too much of the treatment delivery to suicidal individuals 
is too similar to how treatment is generally delivered for all problems. In the mental health field, I believe there's an overemphasis on working with just an identified individual with an identified problem. Given the complexity of suicide risk and the importance of the individual's interactions with those in their social environment, I believe more attention needs to be given to approaches that add family components, or we need to consider you know, testing or adding additional social environment components to our existing treatments. Not, they're just not individual silos in their lives. So just so you know, there is some nice preliminary evidence for adding family components or system theory principles to both CBT and DBT, but none of this research has been done yet with adult clients. And I believe adults also exist as part of families and their communities, et cetera. So to this point, when it comes to preventing suicide, I pointed out a number of potential directions relative to specific types of prevention activities. What I'd like to end with are suggestions for systems level change, which has the potential to assist the delivery of every other prevention component that I've mentioned. As I mentioned earlier, the Zero Suicide Initiative is a very promising approach to creating system level change in order to support suicide prevention programming. However, the research that's been done so far, albeit limited, suggests that implementation of zero suicide has run into numerous barriers. Given this, it would seem that the basic zero suicide system level intervention may not be enough. Fortunately, a number of organizations are attempting enhanced versions of zero suicide. For example, up in New York, they're attempting an enhanced version that incorporates site champions, has follow-up collaborative meetings after the initial zero suicide training in order to identify problem-solve barriers and identify also what appears to be working well. In our own work here in Florida, we're trying something similar with follow-up technical assistance meetings after the initial trainings. You know, hopefully this will continue to get support for organizational buy-in, check that system level change is happening. In particular, we want to make sure that change isn't just changing the attitudes and behaviors of providers and supervisors, but actually trying to get change into the actual written policies and procedures to make it a more permanent change. We're also collecting data on what's covered in these technical assistance meetings. Hopefully in the years to come, we'll know more about what it takes to aid the implementation of suicide prevention efforts at the system level. Anyway, Thank you for letting me share with you my somewhat quick review of suicide prevention and some ideas for future directions, maybe a bit influenced by the work of my team, you know, the Alliance and Suicide Prevention Lab. Honestly, I couldn't do what I do without them. They are just an unbelievable group of individuals. I also really want to thank uh, my collaborators um, at UCF, in particular, Dr. Kim Greglowitz and her lab. Um, hopefully all the work that we're doing can play a role in saving lives. And I also want to acknowledge this work would not be possible without generous funding from NIMH and SAMHSA and without the help of many collaborators like all throughout Florida. So anyway, thank you very much. This ends Dr. Carver's very important presentation. It is obvious there is more work to do on this topic, both in terms of research and practice. Interventions such as tested care coordination strategies most likely have an important role, as well as efforts such as zero suicide and training for professionals, gatekeepers, and families with better strategies to reach those at risk. System changes are definitely needed, with the primary, secondary, which Dr. Carver greatly discussed, and tertiary prevention strategies for change. So on behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, I thank you for joining me and keep listening. We have more podcasts coming soon. As always, the Activist Lab would love to hear your feedback. So let us know how we did by emailing us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. Also, we have a Donate Now button and a QR code on our website and would appreciate any support you could provide. So until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Hey, remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. 
Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family. We are on all media, Apple, Amazon, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And hey, come see us soon in the Activist Lab.